0: Hello and welcome to this week's Worldwide Civility Council podcast on civility. Today's podcast is a rebroadcast of a discussion by Philip Durrell on tolerance and forbearance. Philip is a Freemason and was the Grand Master of British Columbia and Yukon in 2014. The podcast is from the Skolamance project and was originally published on july the 6th 2022. thank you
1: welcome to the Skolamance project i am your host troy the devil man you can interact with the show at our website Skolamance.ca sign up for our newsletter support our patreon for exclusive content and ask our future guests questions. Skolomance, Aspire, Explore, Inspire. Most Worshipful Brother Philip Durrell was installed as Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of British Columbia and Yukon in June of 2014. His year in the Grand East coincided with my year as Worshipful Master of the Duke of Connaught Lodge and we spent a lot of time together in Lodge at that time. His thoughts about the craft and the men who practice it have been very influential on my interpretation of Freemasonry. Well, thank you, Most Worshipful Brother Durrell, for being here with us today. Um, I don't know if you've listened to an episode or not, but we've uh, been talking to a number of different Uh, People, some Freemasons, some other people outside of the order. Of course, your good friend uh, Wes Regan's appeared on a few episodes and will appear on some future episodes, good friend of mine as well. Um, We want to talk to uh, practitioners and philosophers, Freemasons, uh, people of an esoteric bent about their personal practice, their philosophical leanings. And so I wanted to get you in today and talk to you about uh, your personal story. So can you, can you give me a little bit about your background and introduction into Freemasonry?
0: Yeah, that, that's very interesting, Troy. As I was originally in the Merchant Navy or the Merchant Marine, as it's often called in North America, and eventually served as a captain on ships. But when I was a, a young officer, we had a friend of the family in Eng- England who was a Freemason. And I attended several of their annual ladies' balls. They were actually called a ball, not a banquet, not a dance. They were balls and dressed up in my naval mess kit and attended these. And I'd always thought I'd like to be a Freemason, but I was traveling all around the world. Uh, I worked for P&O and little did I know that half the officers in PO were actually Freemasons and that they had their own meetings on board the ships. Because back then, no one would give you a nudge or a wink. You had to ask. So I didn't think anything more about it and then when I came ashore and became a manager in the ports, again I was moving around from port to port and it didn't seem the right time because I just wasn't stable in any one area and it didn't seem to be a, a good thing to pursue. But when I came to Canada, I was 41, so that's 33 34 years ago. And I, I didn't know anyone except the people at my work. And then one of the guys at work said, well we all joined this lodge. How about you becoming a member? And at that time, I can honestly say the reason I joined Freemasonry was to meet other people, men especially, but obviously their wives as well. This has been another podcast from the Worldwide Civility Council. I didn't know thank you for listening. So that was my for initial information introduction and our other projects, And please check out our website at interest. But I didn't really know why, and the internet wasn't so widely known where you could read up on Freemasonry as well. You'd have to go to a library or something like that. But when I got in, wow, did I find that this was truly an organization. Brotherly love, relief, and truth. Well, the brotherly love part was very strong, In that lodge and other lodges in British Columbia and Yukon. Maybe not so much the education and philosophical side, but certainly the fraternal side was there. And I did meet a lot of people. And today, a lot of my friends are Freemasons or Freemasons and their families. So that was my original reason for joining. But it changed over time.
1: Yeah. Uh, dare I ask you about any spiritual or religious pursuits before you joined the craft? Any, any upbringing in the church or oh, anything like that? Oh, that's very
0: good. Yes, that's a good point. I was uh, brought up by my parents in, originally, Church of England. Uh, we attended church every Sunday. We attended Sunday school every Sunday afternoon. And... <clears throat> About when I was, I don't know, 10 or 11, my father decided he would join the Methodist Church. I guess that would be the United Church over here. And his feeling was they were more musical. My father was a great musician, in fact, ended up playing the organ in the church. And I went there and I found it far more open, far more joyous and... Actually, very much more the ministers would be direct their attention to the children, and there <clears throat> still, we'd have the morning service, we would go to a Sunday school halfway through the service, and then my father sent us to Sunday school again in the afternoon, so yes, I had a quite a strong upbringing, but I think I was mostly attending. Because my father wanted me to. But I would, uh, then I went to sea in the Merchant Navy at the age of 17. And when I came home, I would often go with my father to the Methodist church in the morning. And my mother went to evensong at the Church of England church, <laughs> where I actually got married later, by the way, in the Church of England. So. Yes, I had a religious upbringing, but I don't ever really consider myself uh, very spiritual or particularly religious. Do I believe in God? Absolutely. Do I think it's necessary to go to church to practice your religion? No. Do I think that other religions have just as much claim as Christianity? Absolutely. And... Here is where going to sea in the Merchant Navy at 17 years old made immense difference, I think, to my thinking and my upbringing, because I went around the world, experienced many different cultures, many different religions. And when I was 18, we went to uh, what they called a mid-apprenticeship release course, where we did navigation and seamanship and all that stuff. But we also had a liberal studies group and the lady they chose was an expert on various philosophical religions. And she spent the whole two terms we were there going through four other major religions other than Christianity. And that I've always been very, very wide in my acceptance of other religions and other philosophies, other cultures, because of my experience when I was young. So that really shaped me. When I joined Freemasonry, jumping way forward, I found that one of the most important things to me in Freemasonry was tolerance, the idea that... Someone having a different opinion might be equally valid as to the opinion or religion or philosophy or country or hockey team that I, even if I disagreed with them. And that idea that Freemasonry embraced that was really, really important to my continuing in Freemasonry. The other thing that was very important was I soon found that I really loved ritual. And the more you perform ritual, the more you understand its meaning, not just its face meaning, but its internal meaning. And that was a very important key as well for me. So uh,
1: let's talk a bit about that. You, you get involved in Freemasonry. You, know, you find a philosophical fit, so to speak, within the craft to you know, sort of a liberal attitude you already had. I want to clarify, a small L liberal attitude. Yes. And that was exposure to cultures around the world and education within your military background. Um, but you find... Did you find you enjoyed ritual because your own aptitude to it? Or was it uh, something that was maybe lacking in
0: other parts of your life? What, what about ritual attracted you? Well, that's a really interesting comment because I suspect that initially like a lot of uh, young Masons, whether you're young or not, you're new to Freemasonry, you're eager to please and to be accepted.
1: Yeah, and shine, perhaps. And
0: that if you, in our Freemasonry, there's two ways that seem to be valued, certainly back then, this is early 90s I'm talking about, and that was attendance and ritual performance they were if if you wanted to be marked out in freemasonry probably in most of north america and certainly i think in our jurisdiction those two things were valued by the old guys back then attendance and ritual performance they probably were more valued than speaking on a topic or education or any philosophical explanations. And that's not to deride that part of Freemasonry. It's absolutely essential. But it was only two elements. It wasn't the full meal deal. That only came later. And I can explain something of that.
1: Yeah. So... uh you know, you you find Freemasonry, you find that that ritual appeals to you, and you mm-hmm. you you go further into into your ritual performance. And people who know you in this jurisdiction know you for your your ritual ability, and not just being able to deliver the memory work. Because ritual is more than just being able to memorize what you have to say. It's part of it as a performance. It's it's akin or equivalent to acting. And when people ask me, well. What are the degrees like? Well, it's the, the, the star of the play is the candidate who has no idea what's going on. And that's, that's what makes it a bit unique.
0: Oh, absolutely. That is so true. Um, I think that we've got it wrong in making every officer perform the same long lectures that the previous officer did. If he's capable, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But if a man has other attributes which he can offer for the craft, as long as he can, if he wants to be worshipful master, well, he has to be able to run a lodge. So that means all the questions and answers of opening and closing and uh, conferring a degree are necessary. But perhaps since the focus of every degree is the candidate, we should be thinking about who can actually best perform the ritual so that he gets that sense of awe which every degree should impose upon the candidate, literally impose upon the candidate. Yeah, and that's
1: about having a good degree That's not
0: the same old past master doing the same lecture every degree. It's got to be shared around. You mentioned that I've performed a lot of ritual. I'm much happier... When a younger guy takes over a part that I've done before, if that guy suddenly has work or family issues and can't make it on the night ball, well, then you can call on that old past master or me or or whoever you know can perform that particular particular lecture. But share it around. Don't hog it because you've got no bench strength then. Mm. So.
1: And I agree with you. I mean, a a degree team uh, needs to be diverse. And I also agree with you. You shouldn't insist for officer advancement, people be able to do uh, these longer, more elaborate lectures when you've got somebody that could dramatize it better. Let that officer focus on the officer's role rather than the the ritual role. Um, And it's about the bench strength of a lodge to be able to deliver the degrees, you know, on a schedule and when guys can't make it, there's, there's always stuff that comes up, but I want to go back and talk a little bit about, uh, you know, so you've joined the craft, you find that you're adept at ritual. You've been at the craft for so long and I know you, you're a very dynamic guy. What, what kept you in? Uh, Other than uh, this ability to perform, you know, this somewhat um, anachronistic language in the rituals uh, and meeting people, was it was it the leadership training? Was it a similarity to your military background? What is it that that kept you hooked, and uh, eventually had you so interested that you sought further advancement of leadership within the craft? I'd be interested to know about that.
0: That's really interesting because I think I did have a lot of leadership positions in business. I had that sort of command and control. Structure was somewhat less uh, strict in the merchant marine than it was in the Royal Navy, although I did, uh, as a reservist, I did sail with the Royal Navy as well. Um, And I think the generation before me, the traditionalists, always accepted that commander control. Uh, I'm a baby boomer, leading edge baby boomer, maybe, but I'm still a baby boomer, and they mostly fully understood that structure maybe some of the generations after that maybe not quite so much they can understand it but they don't accept it as much as my generation so I, I i think there was something similar there i i was quite happy as long as the person wasn't being silly in abusing their position or They've got this position in Freemasonry because they couldn't get it anywhere else. I'm sorry to say that. There are some of you out there. (laughs) But anyway, uh, most not so much. Nowadays, I think we get far more acceptance of younger Freemasons from the older generation. And maybe that's because the older generation now are boomers and they're not so much the traditionalists. So I think there's that to it. What kept me going was the feeling that I could contribute. As long as I could contribute, then I was I was fine. I think I wrote my first paper in 1993, which was two years after I joined. And I'm not a prolific uh, paper writer. I write when I think I have something to say or contribute. My first paper was Navigation and Freemasonry, and I used the navigation tools, which I was very, very familiar with, and express them as meanings within Freemasonry. Well, our compasses was easy, you know, the chart or, or whatever else I use, star globes, that was easy too. And that was fun at that stage. And then <clears throat> I didn't really write anything else for a while. And then just every now and then something grabbed me or a phrase in our ritual. Again, the importance of ritual. Nearly everything that's important within Freemasonry is contained within the ritual somewhere. And maybe it's just a phrase, right? You know the one, the distinguishing characteristic of a Freemason's heart. Well, there you go. Let's talk about charity, all right? The chief point of Freemasonry. Well, I've written papers on these because they were important Mm -hmm. to me. And I felt it was important to explain and discuss with others what they meant by the chief point of Freemasonry. Um, Whatever these things are, it's encouraging people to look at the meanings behind our ritual. Mm. I remember... One meeting when I was Grandmaster, I stood there in the middle of the lodge talking, and I was pointing to the Grandmaster's apron, which has this amazing sun right in the middle of it. And I said to the brethren, can anyone explain to me why this is the particular emblem in the middle of the Grandmaster's apron, or why the sun is so prominent in our ritual?" in our openings and closings. And young Casey Collins of Mount Hermon Lodge, brother Casey Collins, I think he was an Entered apprentice at the time. He took up the challenge and produced a paper and sent it to me. That's why I want to at least occasionally Mm. get up and try and inspire people to think about what they've got in Freemasonry because I think there's a lot more to Freemasonry, and a lot of Freemasons are only scratching the surface. And if they can be encouraged to look further, they'll find a lot more and a lot more meaning, and they will continue to stay. For
1: sure. You you mentioned charity, and to a modern individual, that might strictly mean what we mean by almsgiving. Can you expand upon the idea of charity and how it more... Leads into compassion, or or yes. the Greek, the Greek, the uh, Greek term well, agape, or any of that. Do you do you mind? Because we're going to talk about tolerance, but I think this is a good way to lead. Oh, in.
0: charity is really important. And let me preface this by saying I am not in any way denigrating uh, any of our charitable endeavours, whether it be the Royal Arch Home, the Freemasons, uh, the Shriners with the children's hospitals, or the work that we've done with the BC Cancer Society, all of those are worthwhile endeavors. So I am not denigrating. The problem that I see with Freemasonry in North America in probably the last 50 years is we have substituted benevolent giving of money time, the people that are giving time, that's different. That is really charity. People that are giving time, the guys that drive Shrine Buses and do all that work or work on the hospital boards, that's charity. Me buying a Shrine calendar isn't charity. It's donating money to a worthy cause. And there are many worthy causes that have got nothing to do with Freemasonry. Charity, to me... Is, is much more caring. Caring is a word, a modern word that I would use to express the charity when we talk about brotherly love relief and truth. Relief is certainly is charitable in giving, but it's giving time. If you're not giving time, is it really charitable? If I can afford to give $100, and not think about it and it doesn't affect my daily life or my standard of living, is that really charity? No, it's a donation to a worthy cause. Absolutely necessary, but it's not charity. Now, if I care for my brethren, if I if I lodge regularly phones, it's shut-ins, I hate that word, shut-ins but their older brethren or sick brethren who can no longer attend Lodge, or even the brother that's moved to Nova Scotia or Portugal or Spain or wherever, that's still a member of the Lodge and still paying his dues, that's caring. When a brother that we expected to show for Lodge doesn't show, which brother phoned him afterwards and said, Hey, bro, we missed you in lodge. Are you okay?
1: Yeah.
0: There's a lot of statistics that have been done. One that I stuck in my brain is that once someone misses three meetings, in our case, three meetings, the likelihood of him ever returning is slim. Wow. So if you've got a regular attender that misses three meetings, it pretty much means he no longer misses. And there may be a reason why. Why is it? Another paper I wrote, what motivates a Freemason? Yeah. Well, I think charitable charity is really caring. It's also not denigrating a brother behind his back, you know, whispering tenderly in his ear instead of whining about him to everybody else in the lodge. Yeah. He's got no chance... Of rectifying whatever fault that you think he may have, I, I really—you you don't get me started because I'll never stop. <laughs> I think charity, really, in simple terms, caring—that
1: uh, the the tradition of compassion in some. Of the religions of the world, I think would be comparable to compassion. Certainly, the, the way en- the way charity should be used. Empathy, the term charity. There's a yeah. lot.
0: I yeah. mean, I can read the paper. I've got it here, but I don't think I will.
1: Well, let's let's lead into into tolerance. Now there there's talk of tolerance and forbearance in in Freemasonry, and I know you've delivered a paper and a, several talks on the topic. Do you? Do you want to summarize what how you feel about tolerance and maybe maybe you could also discuss how the practice of Freemasonry in your life has changed your opinion of tolerance or forbearance. Ha,
0: ha, ha. yes. Well, I realized that uh, in many cases I've been intolerant and it's you know when when you write a paper on tolerance and toleration the difference, right? Toleration is the action tolerance yeah. is the philosophical side of it is how often do we disagree violently with somebody and say, and you know, or, or I've heard people say he's dead to me maybe because he did something that I disagreed with, which is so abhorrent to me, but I didn't really think about what his viewpoint was or his side of it was. So, you know, it's Stephen Covey, seek first to understand, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And that idea of opening a dialogue with somebody that you really disagree with, very hard for me if it's something that I really, almost violently disagree with. And I think the, there's two parts of Freemasonry that have meant the most to me, and that's Craft Lodge and Scottish Rite. One of the Scottish Rite lectures, Albert Pike, who wrote the charge, tells us to be tolerant even of intolerance. Now, I don't think I've mastered that yet, <laughs> uh, but the idea of Jesus Christ is supposed to have said turn the other cheek that's exactly what it is it's it's that idea of being tolerant but where do you actually draw the line and say there's a line in the sand i cannot go further than this and i still haven't figured that one out by the way because on one side we have peace and harmony And on the other side, and you can bend over so far backwards that the lodge gets destroyed anyway because you didn't actually tackle the issues that were there. And that's where, you know, someone like Most Welsh Brother Cave, who's head of the Grand Lodge Mediation Committee, if we've got someone that's skilled in in mediating within the lodge, that is a really, really wonderful skill because you don't get involved in either side. Yeah. And I think that we we could do more with mediation other than going straight to the Grand Secretary and wanting to bring this guy up for unmasonic conduct. What they mean is conduct that I don't agree with, and sending that to the trial commission, instead of doing what we as Freemasons are supposed to do, is take it outside the lodge and discuss it and try and get over. I think people are being extremely intolerant when they disagree with someone. It might be over; it's usually over something quite trivial. Sometimes it is masonic conduct, but often it isn't. It's just I disagree with what this brother's doing.
1: Yeah. Do you do you think that the craft, the the larger craft, has something to contribute to? Um, civility in in the wider society, in in our training to avoid um, uh, all disagreements of religious or political nature, is there something that we could teach those who don't even think about the craft? Do we have a role to play in in modern discourse in in, in teaching the tenets of of civil discourse?
0: Well. You know, when we first started the civility movement within Freemasonry, honestly, my first thought was, this is a wonderful program because it could teach us to be civil towards one another within the craft. (laughs) And that's a byproduct. Is there more incivility outside the craft than within it? I think... If, if social media is to believe, absolutely. But I see quite a lot of incivility on Freemasons discussion boards too, whether that be on Facebook or, or wherever else. So, yes, if you are talking about the principles of Freemasonry as described in many philosophical books and many much of our ritual, then absolutely, but we have to live it to be able to transmit it. So that's really you cannot communicate something you don't believe yourself. That's why I'm an infrequent paper writer because I have to really believe it. Otherwise it's not just an educational exercise for me. It's something I'm passionate about. And I think if we're going to extend the ideas behind the civility movement outside of Freemasonry, then we absolutely have to be passionate about it within Freemasonry and to be able to communicate it outside.
1: So do you think it's important, more important for the craft to spend time, um, I don't want to say promoting itself, maybe maybe polishing its image to the public? Or do you think it's more important for the craft to continue to look at itself and work on itself and be more of an insular organization?
0: Without a doubt, in my opinion, the most important thing that we can do as Freemasons is improve ourselves and improve the experience in every Lodge meeting. Every Lodge meeting, not just the occasion when Andrew Hammer comes up and we've got a 100 people in the lodge and everyone goes away rejoicing. But every single meeting must be meaningful, otherwise they won't stay. There's no point in burnishing our image in the public if we cannot motivate people to want to be at our meetings. So the most important thing is to improve that experience. And generally, lodges which attract not only new members but also affiliate members from other lodges, unfortunately, are the ones that generally have the best meetings.
1: And you're you're talking about uh, moving away from from pure business and making sure that there's. Uh, degree work, or interesting discussions, or interesting education, or other social occasions that that make sense to be held um, within the lodge. Is, is that what you're talking about? Or,
0: I, I yes, I am. As you know, I was a, a founding member of Excelsior Lodge when it first started, and the premise behind Excelsior Lodge. Everyone got hung up on. The, the annual dues, which was very expensive compared to the general annual dues of most lodges. And the fact that it was at the Vancouver Club probably heightened that it was only for lawyers and, you
1: know. Pe- exp- people could afford it.
0: Yeah. But in actual fact, nearly everyone, there are some that couldn't afford it, but nearly everyone could afford it if they so chose. Right right? They just didn't choose to. But the things that were introduced by that lodge have been forgotten. We only had eight meetings a year. Every meeting had a meal. We only performed a maximum of three degrees or conferred three degrees per year. We were strict in vetting every single person that wanted to join, whether it was affiliate or uh, a new member. We, in our charter, we, we had guidelines in addition to our, our bylaws actually were in accordance with our constitution and little more. But what we did write was guidelines for the lodge, which every, found a member signed and everybody else signed when they joined. And it it was basically an operational procedure, how this lodge was going to act, what was expected of each, each individual member. And I think we could do that in other lodges. But one of the things that were well, absolutely the first lodge to do was minimize the Board meeting. We had two planning meetings per year, which were completely separate from meeting nights, held over a good social event afterwards, where every brother had an equal voice in saying what they would like to see in the lodge, and the rest of it was the administrative era of the lodge. We took care of that. 15 minutes, that business which had to be conducted in the lodge obviously was, such as balloting, that's obviously, election of officers, all of that still in the lodge. But now almost every lodge follows that procedure and does no longer read the minutes in lodge. Well, that wasn't the case when that lodge started. So yes, I'm a big proponent. You know, I would like the Worshipful Master with the assistance of his officers and maybe a few past masters to be able to plan his year whilst he was senior warden, even though he hasn't yet been elected, and to have something planned for every meeting. And except on a long degree night, I think Ancient Workmaster Mason's night should be nothing more than that on that evening. It's way too long. And I don't even want a two minute education piece at the end of that. But every meeting where it's within, kept within a short time should something have something interesting for the brethren to take away. You can actually talk about something for three minutes or 30 minutes and brethren will remember the same amount of information. Three minutes or 30 minutes because the human brain cannot Accept more than one or two key points to take away. What they will never ever forget is the way they felt. Every brother remembers the way he felt.
1: So, are are you saying that the seventy-five minutes and twenty-five slides for an introduction to Hermetic Kabbalah probably not held inside a lodge a good idea?
0: Yes. (laughs) <laughs> I would say that on the subject of slides, every slide should represent about five minutes. I know, I was an educator. You and know. and five slides. Five slides. Maybe six. Six, seven, maybe, yeah. because some may be just quick informational, <laughs> but generally keep the slides to a minimum, keep the amount of information on them, especially if it's written to a minimum, and use pictures.
1: Yes. Describe the pictures. Don't just Absolutely. read the text on a slide. I can't believe we're covering I, I, this. But. I
0: really uh, – Freemason. – I'm getting excited just talking to you now. Yeah. And it's because you're bringing up all the essences within Freemasonry that I truly enjoy.
1: So I, I, I want to talk about a couple other things, you know, your – looking towards the grand East in your Masonic career and then how it's changed you is philosophically and spiritually. But while we're on procedural now, not everybody listening to this are going to be Masons in this jurisdiction. We're going to initiate a couple of hundred Masons like in the next year or two, because we, we hadn't done any for years, right? Yes. Because we were all locked down. We're going to get all these new members and it's going to be hard work because each, Lots of people don't know this, but for each mason you make, it's dozens, if not hundreds, of hours of practice and and personal time for the people who deliver the degrees. It's a lot of work. Um, what what's the best thing any lodge can do to improve its experience for those new entered apprentices and have a better chance at having them? Uh, stick around after the first few meetings they get initiated.
0: Oh, now you started on another (laughs) pet peeve. (laughs) First, I want to go back to what was then an extremely successful lodge. I'm not quite so sure how well they're doing today. But they proudly told me that in just over a year, they'd initiated... 20 new members and I know that within two years of those 20 becoming Master Masons only one and a half were showing up to lodge so here's the thing I think that in general most lodges do a pretty good job of looking after their candidates not all We're much better at interacting with them before they put their uh, papers in. Six-step program or various lodge versions of the six-step program have vastly improved the process of, to use a modern word, onboarding (laughs) new masons. Some lodges, There's no contact except for the guy that's doing their ritual for them, you know, their coach between degrees. And I think that's a shame. But most lodges now have got maybe the young master masons looking after uh, the candidates, maybe a old past master looking after the candidates, uh, social events where they can come. Some educational pieces, we can put the lodge at refreshment and they can attend because there's no secrets being talked about.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so I think in general, not saying we can't be, get better, but in general, from first contact with the lodge through to being raised as a master mason, that we are in general pretty good. It's after that where we fall flat on our face. And here is the related problem with what you've just said: 200 new Freemasons in British Columbia and Yukon now if a lodge has got a backlog of say six yeah and they decide that they're going to put they're going to do them in batches
1: yeah
0: two at a time
1: you're, you're talking about the Duke of Connaught Lodge right now.
0: Well, I'm talking about (laughs) any lodge that's got this But I mean, you could... The the lodge you and I share in common. Yes, yes. I mean, this is exemplar number one. What's going to happen? Honestly, the best experience for a new brother is to be the only candidate. Mm. That is the best experience. Now... I do agree that we have got a special circumstance here. There are some benefits for having two, such as they connect. Mm-hmm. So they've got someone else going through the same experience at the same time. So there are some benefits to that. Certainly ancient work master Mason degree should never have more than two and preferably mm. one. But here's the problem. Let's say... We're going to do a, a confer an entered apprentice degree on two of those candidates and then maybe two more and then two more and we're we're going to intersperse enter uh, fellow fellowcraft and then master mason. The problem is what resources have you got in your lodge to look after six new members? Hmm. You probably do it quite well whilst they're candidates and through raising. But who's going to look after them after that? We're usually scrambling around to find officers. So, oh, you you should be an officer. They don't know what they're getting themselves into. It'd be much better if they could wait a year or two. Right. But that means we better get some good programs so that they'll still be there when we want them to be officers. Yeah. So it's, it's a chicken and egg. We need... We need new races. All the young guys, and it doesn't matter if you're 65 or 25, you're young in Freemasonry when you join. Yes. They are the lifeblood, and they're far, far more important than any past grandmaster. And past grandmaster's job is to pass the baton, inspire. Get people excited about Freemasonry and keep going in that vein but don't try and run Freemasonry anymore. That's for the young guys to do. Let them run their lodge. This has been another podcast from the Worldwide Civility Council. We thank you for listening.
1: For further information on civility and our other projects please check out our website at civilitycouncil.org
0: Thank you.